one of the things that we need to understand, and we see it oftentimes, that in the Christian community, in the church at large, particularly those who are known in the church, church leaders, pastors, evangelists or something, when it comes to this area immorality, and when somebody is involved in that sin, the world loves to eat it up, doesn't it? Welcome to Under the Fig Tree. Under the Fig Tree is a verse-by-verse study taught by Pastor Jeff Figs of Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We are currently studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Jeff. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 we read, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament. We've gone over it on Wednesday nights as we're going through the Old Testament, but it occurs there in the Old Testament book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 25. You see, after this, this uh, king of Moab had hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel, which it didn't work. You see, the children of Israel at that time, in the book of Numbers, they're towards the end, of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. They're coming up on the backside of the desert there. They're coming up towards the land of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River. And so as they're getting close to where they're going to go into that land, that is the land of Canaan at that time, and they're going to possess the land, they're going to be traveling through that area of Moab. And so the king of Moab, he's very upset about that. And so he's trying to, to do something to, to curse the children of Israel. So after the hiring of Balaam and in those chapters that we see those prophecies that he uttered and where he actually blessed Israel, he came back to the king of Moab and said, listen, if you really want to get at them, what you need to do is you need to have your young ladies go down into the camp seduce the men of the children of Israel and also have them bring their idols and introduce idol worship to them. And so that's what the king of Moab did, Balak. Balak sent his young ladies down into the camp of the children of Israel. They would bring their idols. They would seduce the men into sexual immorality. And also they were involved in, in, uh, in idolatry. And those sins would begin to spread very quickly amongst the people. It began to corrupt the people of God. And so it was so bad that what happened was 
is that God would bring judgment on the children of Israel. He sent a plague, and 24,000 people were judged in that plague that would go throughout the camp. The reason that I'm mentioning that story is because it reminds me somewhat of what Paul is going to be warning here the Corinthian believers about. This sin of immorality that is in the church, that is known, has the potential to begin to corrupt and spread throughout the church. And so as we have seen going through this epistle so far, the apostle writing this corrective letter to the Corinthian believers because they needed to be corrected on a number of issues. And we have seen that as he writes to them that he has already dealt with a number of problems and issues that needed to be addressed and will continue to do so as we see here in chapter 5. In the first four chapters, we saw that the apostle was addressing their problem of division, their problem of pride, being puffed up. They had carnality that was associated with them. Those were the main issues that we saw in chapters 1 through 4. And instead of seeking God's wisdom, the Corinthian believers, they were more into the persuasive words of man's wisdom. Instead of humbling themselves, they were all puffed up in pride. Instead of desiring holiness, there was carnality. And instead of being united in Christ, they were divided. And as we go through this chapter here, we're going to discover that there was some unity that was in the church that we will see, but their unity was based on tolerating sin. So it was all backwards here for the Corinthian church. They were dividing when they should have been uniting. They were uniting when they should have been dividing or at least separating themselves from this sin that was taking place in the church, but they weren't doing that. So let's begin again to look at this situation that was a problem that Paul addresses now in the church of Corinth as we read in verse 1 that he writes, Paul the Apostle, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Paul is writing this letter from the city of Ephesus, and he's saying, I have learned. It is reported to me, it's common knowledge, that there is a man in your congregation that is living with his stepmother in sin. And when Paul writes that it's actually been reported, he is indicating that it was public knowledge. It was public knowledge not only in the church, but it was public knowledge also within the city of Corinth. People in the church knew about this situation. People in the city of Corinth had knowledge that this was going on. And Paul, he says, I understand, even in Ephesus, that this sin has taken place. So the church is aware of this. And this man is coming into the church. It's not a secret. It's not being whispered about, but he's coming to the church and he's having fellowship and you're puffed up about it rather than mourning or being grieved by it. It doesn't seem to bother you Christians at all. You're taking this so lightly and and they weren't concerned at all. And this is a sin that Paul says that is not even named among the Gentiles. That, of course, is a term for unbelievers. 
In other words, what he is saying is, is basic common morals tell you that this is wrong. It's an obvious case of adultery that has now turned into incest. Now, Leviticus chapter 20 says that this sin was punishable by death. Now, them being the Gentile believers, they may or may not know the Old Testament law. They're not under the law. But it's interesting that even Roman law forbid this. And I find that interesting because when it came to to law, the Roman law concerning morality, there wasn't a whole lot that they forbid. Just about anything went, but this was even forbidden in Roman law. So you can get the feeling of Paul's concern here. He's very grieved by this situation, and he's frustrated. And he is one that is directly addressing this, and he has concern for the church because of their tolerance of their sin, their open-mindedness. Now remember something, that Corinth, as we opened up this epistle, that we talked about how Corinth was a very wicked city. It was full of sin. It, w- it was known for its carnality, and uh, it was known for its immorality. It had a reputation for that. In the ancient plays, if anyone ever played a Corinthian, it was always the role of a drunkard or somebody that was very immoral. And in the city of Corinth, there was a temple that was there dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was the goddess of sensuality. And so there would be every day a thousand temple prostitutes that would come out of that temple. They would offer themselves up to others in in sexual immorality, and they would do it as an act of worship for Aphrodite. And so Paul here, he knows that this is a problem here in the city of Corinth. And Paul's going to point out obvious reasons why this is a problem in the church. You see, one of the things that Paul is going to be getting across to them already is and will continue as we go through these chapters that you as Christians, you're different than the world. You are to live differently. And this is a problem here in the church. That is, this sin will not only affect the church, But what will happen is that others will begin to think that in the church they can be involved in this situation, in this kind of sin, and also it's a terrible witness to the world. With unbelievers seeing that this sin is in the church, they could point to the church, to the believers, to the Christians who are saying, well, it's no big deal. They're puffed up about it. It's, it's okay. And they're pointing out, see, they say it's okay. It's no big deal. It is a problem today in the church at large, isn't it? When the church is accepting of sin, when the church comes along and accepts immorality, and what happens is, is those who are unbelievers, those who are in the world, they can point at the church and say, see their witness? They say it's okay. They say it's acceptable. It's tolerable. And what it does is it eases their conscience. It, it, it justifies in their own mind their own immorality. So in the church was this man living with this stepmother in an immoral relationship. It wasn't that, as some would say, that they just had a fling or a one-time deal. It is that he has taken his father's wife. They are living together, and it is known, and this is being known throughout the church and throughout the community. There is no conviction on the part of these two individuals, and there is no desire to repent. 
So you and the church, you're okay with that? And if the people of Corinth see that you are okay with it and accepting of it, then it's a terrible witness to them. It does not represent the heart of God and the truth of God. And it gives them an excuse to continue in their immorality without any kind of conviction, with any kind of voice that stands for righteousness. One of the things that we need to understand, and we see it oftentimes, that in the Christian community, in the church at large, particularly those who are known in the church, church leaders, pastors, evangelists or something, when it comes to this area of immorality, and when somebody is involved in that sin, the world loves to eat it up, doesn't it? The world loves to talk about it. It'll be in the papers, it'll be in the news, it'll be on the talk shows, and what it does is it gives an unbeliever a reason to justify their own behavior, and it will cause the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. That was the case with David. David was well known, wasn't he? David, of course, was the king of Israel. And in the height of his, his being king, his popularity and his power, when things were really going well, we read about in 2 Samuel how it was David that walked out on his porch. He should have been out to war with his troops at that time, but he stayed home. And David saw a woman who was bathing that was very beautiful, her name Bathsheba. And he called for her. He knew who she was. She knew who her husband was, Uriah, who was one of David's mighty men. You see, if you were one of David's mighty men, you had to be faithful. You were a man of integrity. You were a man of character. We see that with the case of Uriah as you read about him. And he was a man that was very much dedicated to David and dedicated to Israel. He was dedicated to being a man of integrity and honesty as he was a soldier. And if you were one of David's mighty men, you had a very prestigious place where you got to live around the palace of David. That's why Bathsheba was close by. Bring her to me. And David committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. David decided that I need to do something. And so he was scheming and deceiving and lying Finally, he came up with the plan to have Uriah killed in war. So David was not only guilty of adultery, he was also guilty of murder. And it would be almost a year later that Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, David, we got a problem in the kingdom here. And the problem is this. There is this rich man, he has a lot of sheep, and he has a guest come over. And instead of going to his herds and getting one of his sheep to prepare a dinner for him, He went down the road. He took a poor man's sheep. It was the only sheep that he had that he was very close to. Matter of fact, it was a pet. And he took his sheep and he killed it and he offered it to his guests. And David, when he heard that, said, that rich man who did that, he must be put to death. And Nathan looked at him and said, you're that man, David. You're that man. You took Uriah's wife. You have been so blessed in the kingdom. You who have multiple wives. You who have everything. And you took Uriah's wife and had him killed. And David, he was one that he repented as you read those chapters. As you read as he writes in the Psalms about how he 
would cry out to God for forgiveness. Nathan said to him, David, you are forgiven, but you have done something, and it's this, that you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name because of your witness, because of you doing this thing. And I'm sure when David heard that, it broke his heart because he was a man after God's own heart. I'll tell you the truth on this, and I know that you know this. It is a useful tool of Satan, and that is to not only try to bring sin into the church, but he knows that when it is tolerated, and when it's accepted, and when we don't stand for righteousness, that it can be a terrible witness to the world. And it goes and gives the unbelievers an opportunity to say, you know what? They're tolerating of sin. They accept these things. You know what? They're just all a bunch of hypocrites. They're no different than we are. Why should I come to Jesus? Why are they any different? This God thing is bogus. That's what they begin to say. And that is why Paul, one of the reasons he's so concerned about this, and his concern is is that the church wasn't concerned at all about this situation. And Satan is going to take full advantage of that. Because he knows not only will it do damage spiritually to the individuals involved, but it's also going to do damage to the church, and it's going to do damage as a witness to the world of God's truth and His holiness. One more point I'd like to make, and then we're going to move on, but this is important. He says it's been reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And it's interesting that the Greek word that Paul uses here for sexual immorality is pornea, where we get our English word what? Pornography. And we need to understand this, that there is a very, very strong link between pornography and the working of sexual immorality. I do not care what the so-called experts say. They are directly linked. And I believe one of the greatest, if not the greatest danger to our society presently, to the family, to marriages, to individual, to the church, is this whole problem of pornography. It brings death. It's everywhere. It's so easily accessible. It brings corruption and wickedness, and sin, and it's like a plague that is spreading throughout our society and in the families of America and in the church even. It's a great sickness. It's like a cancer that is growing. I plead with you, if it is something that you struggle with, anybody that might be here today, Please deal with it. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, then what you need to do is you need to pluck it out. And so if it is a problem, what Jesus is saying is you need to deal with it radically. He's not talking about bodily mutilation. But one of the things that he is saying is this. You deal with it radically. And that's what you and or anyone needs to do, that has that problem, if you're pulling up things on the computer, if you're watching things on the cable network, whatever it might be that causes you to carnal out in this whole area of pornography, then deal with it. Get rid of it. 
Get rid of it. Do something. But don't continue because it will bring destruction to your soul. And you've got to understand this, that it comes directly from the pit of hell. Repent. And ask God for help, but don't get involved with it any longer. It is a cancer and a plague that is causing so many problems and bringing great wickedness to our society. Paul continues here, verse 30, For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done, so done this deed. So Paul is saying that I've already made up my mind, I've already made a judgment on this situation, Paul using his apostolic authority, and now we'll tell the church what to do. And I think that this verse here really shows the concern of Paul because he rarely would push, or that is emphasize this apostolic authority in such a manner. But he knew that at this time it's necessary, and he says, I've made a judgment, a decision on this. Now when it comes to, when it comes to church discipline, when it comes to leadership in a church making decisions, Sometimes when the church has to say what you're doing is sin, it's not right, the Word of God declares it very, very clearly, that sometimes people will say, hey man, didn't Jesus said not to judge? Judge not lest you be judged. That's what the Bible says. So don't judge me. The flip side of the coin of that is there are more and more churches that are saying, well, you know what? We don't want to judge anybody. You know, God loves people the way they are and we just want them to come in and not talk about sin and not for them to be convicted and you know we don't want to point out their sins or we don't want to say what they're doing is wrong and they begin to accept any kind of lifestyle or any kind of thing that's going on in somebody's life that the bible says very clearly is sin we see more and more of that kind of mindset has taken place and they always go back to Matthew chapter 7 of Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. You've got to keep Matthew chapter 7 in context. When it talks about judging, he is talking about don't be judging in a hypocritical kind of way. Don't be looking at the log in your brother's, you know, or the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. But in that same chapter, it is Jesus that also said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Beware of false prophets and teachers, and you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. Now that takes a judgment call, doesn't it? And throughout the New Testament, we're told to correct and rebuke and instruct and be discerning and wise and all of that, that there needs to be judgments. And that is what Paul is doing as he sees that this individual in the church, his conduct, his behavior is very sinful and he's calling it out. And now this is what you are to do, verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. As Paul gives this guidance on how to discipline. Now, oftentimes, when we think of discipline, we think of Matthew chapter 18, don't we? We think, isn't there supposed to be an individual, as Jesus said, to go to that brother or sister who is sinning? and address it if they don't uh, respond to it then take two or three witnesses and if they still don't respond to it then take it before the church why didn't paul say that well because everybody knew about it and this person 
was puffed up about it. The people are puffed up about it. You've got to understand that Matthew chapter 18 is a way of discipline that oftentimes is applied, but not in every case. There are other guidelines given for discipline in the church that we are to follow. For example, in the book of Titus, when it talks about somebody who's bringing division, Paul would write to Titus and say that you are to separate from them after, or that is reject them after the second or third warning. So there are specific guidelines given to us. Matthew 18 will apply in a lot of cases. But in this case, Paul is saying, listen, it is known. There's no need for a person to go or two or three witnesses. It's already known. It's already before the church. Get them out now. This brother committing sin with this stepmother, who was probably a non-believer, not part of the church at least, because she's not addressed in this section. First of all, you are to be grieving over this situation. And understand, that's the heart of Paul. He's grieving, and what he's saying to the Corinthian believers is you ought to be grieving over this. This ought to bring sadness to you that this is going on. Thank you for joining us on Under the Fig Tree. If you would like a copy of today's study, please call us and ask for the message with today's date. Our phone number is 970-330-1717. That number again, 970-330-1717. If you prefer, you can write us at 2602 West 27th Street, Greeley, Colorado, 80634. You can also visit us online at ccgreeley.com. Under the Fig Tree is brought to you by Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We invite you to join with us for our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. and our Wednesday evening service at 7 p.m. Please join with us next time as we continue to study the Bible together on Under the Fig Tree.